powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. As the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. White men in hoods in a secret society. Super comforting. I'm sorry, are they beatboxing a poem about the Congo? Over on the desk. You know what's a different perspective? A person of color in your class. They aren't actually enjoying poetry. They're just like, I don't even think they're actually understanding what the poems mean. They're just reading shit, because it rhymes. He hasn't taught them analysis. He hasn't taught them close reading of poems. The hell? Sounds bad in all the ways. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough, and I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, in body if not in spirit, is my lovely wife, Nakia, otherwise known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. (laughs) How are you today, dear? Feeling unenthusiastic. How are you? That's not really an unusual state for you, is it? Not when we're doing this, no. It's pretty (laughs) much my standard feeling. One of these days, we're going to have you come in, like, really excited to watch a movie. I don't think so. That would be very off-brand for me. So if you're joining us for the first time today, the premise of The Unenthusiastic Critic is that each week Nikia sits down for her first viewing of a film that nearly every other person on the planet has already seen. On this week's episode, we've decided to seize the day and watch 1989's Dead Poet Society, starring Robin Williams. But first, uh, we have a little listener mail. And actually, this is a comment that was left on our website, and I thought it would make for an interesting discussion. In fact, this person didn't even ask a question, but we're going to pretend that she did. <laughs> she said, I'm starting to hate watching favorite movies from my past. Now, being able to see the xenophobia, racism, and blatant sexual harassment, it's a hard spot to be in. Do you want to smile because of the memories of watching a film so many times? But then you notice that a character is straight-up homophobic or racist, and it just turns that smile into an angry frown. So this is a topic that has already come up a little bit, and it's going to come up a lot as we go forward with this series. So I thought it would maybe be helpful to have a conversation about that today. We're not going to be able to do this topic justice, but let's talk about it a little bit. Okay. Pretty much by design, you were encountering movies for the first time in 2017, now 2018, that I first loved as a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s. Right. And these movies were made in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Some of them are all going to be older than that. Times have changed. Attitudes have changed. Awareness has hopefully grown. And stuff that was considered harmless or even hilarious back then is just not okay by today's (laughs) standards. So how, how do we, how do we approach this? How do we go about it? Like, I know we talked about it a lot and it was fun to talk about, but like, did the problems in Back to the Future really affect your enjoyment of that movie that much? Well, I didn't enjoy it that much to begin with. And then, I mean, sort of, because... 
it sort of takes you out of the film. It becomes this thing that's like, oh, well, I need to kind of pull that piece out and analyze that and, like, why are they making those choices and what does that mean? And, you know, so it does sort of take you out of the moment of the movie. I can't just let that slide. Yeah, I think that's true because there is just this tonal right. attachment that right. happens where it's like, okay, this is a light, frothy right. comedy and now... Leah Thompson's getting raped right. in the back of the car, and somehow that's to them still part of the light frothy right. tone. Whereas exactly. that's just like, no, that's that's a problem. So it may it may be that that is what is sort of causing my unenthusiastic nature in this is because I'm I'm just looking at these films in a different with a different lens at this point. I'm coming to things later. Right, you're coming to them cold. Right. We've already mentioned there are movies you love. That are problematic, but it just happens to be that I fell in you, love with it before I knew. Early. Right, right. So, what does that mean when we're looking back at these old movies? Right. When we're watching these right. old movies, and how much should that matter? Right. There's a critic named Matt Zoller Seitz who's he's written for a lot of places. He's currently the editor in chief at RogerEbert.com, and he just a few days ago had a Twitter thread about this very issue and. He, he was basically complaining about the plethora of articles that have been turning up recently that are like, I watched this older movie that people love and I discovered it's horribly sexist or horribly racist. So that sort of shallow take of like right. acting like they've just discovered something that right. was pretty obvious to anyone who's actually thought about it. And he was talking about kind of the lack of contextualization, and he was saying that, you know, he thinks movie criticism should take a page from art criticism and literary criticism that deals with seeing things in a historical context mm -hmm. much better and appreciating them for their formal elements mm -hmm. <laughs> separated from things we find problematic today. It's harder to do with movies, definitely. It is hard. Well, and it's also like, should we be treating... Well, it's not like that at all, actually, because I was going to say, should we be treating films the way that we treat people in that, you know, there were things that I probably said when I was, you know, in junior high school or high school that I would be just disgusted at myself sure. for thinking or, and, but, you know, you want people to give you the benefit of the doubt to kind of grow and change and learn, but that doesn't happen with film because film is just this static thing. We can analyze whether or not a particular director has grown if they have done, you know, other films. But if you're just looking at this one piece of art, it becomes harder to give it the benefit of the doubt. For me, at least, I think. Right. I think you can take the art at face value. I'm using art loosely here because there are some movies that you've shown me that I would not call art. But you take it at face value, but then also there has to be space to critically analyze the work and say, okay, well, this point was really problematic or, you know, I don't understand why this choice was made. And we've talked about this a little bit and I think some of it, and I haven't fully kind of teased this out, is this sort of idea of like propaganda versus ignorance. So you have something like watching Gone with the Wind, which we watched maybe a year or two ago. I don't know how long ago that was. It was a couple of years ago. We, we, watched, we watched it for the blog and wrote right. about it. So so that was my first time seeing it and that one that was a film that I just actively avoided because I knew it was bullshit so watching it I have no problem saying that is a terrible film it spreads a terrible message about what the South looks like it, it's this sort of Disneyfication of the South and that is propaganda like that was a choice that was an agenda right. of that film and it should be fair game to say that's problematic. It's, 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 there are aspects of that that are just completely unacceptable. They, they were unacceptable then. They are unacceptable today. Versus ignorance. And this is sort of where you 
it gets a little bit complicated because people can just, well, we were just ignorant of those facts at the time. And so we thought a character like, uh, what's that? Long Duck Dong? <laughs> right. And so it's just like candles. somebody sat down and wrote that. Right. <laughs> they named that character that. And they crafted this, this sort of set of characteristics and they made that choice. There's really no reason for that character to be in the movie. Right. And there's no reason for him to be represented in that way. To be so incredibly to be racist. so incredibly and racist. Cur- yeah. Mm-hmm. And such a caricature of the Asian community. So... Well, that's, a, that's actually a good example to talk about. Because, I mean, it's... You know, I think one of the questions that's involved in this conversation is, at what point does it become disqualifying? That you just say, I cannot enjoy right. that movie anymore. Right. I can't watch Sixteen Candles anymore. Right. Okay. That's not far from the worst thing. That's in that far movie. from the worst thing in that movie. Right. So there's also the part where the guy that Molly Ringwald is interested in, I can't remember his name, and I don't think he was ever in another movie. <laughs> but he basically gives his catatonic girlfriend yes. to Anthony Michael Hall's nerdy character. Yes. And says, Go have fun. Yeah. Which is Straight up rape. Yes. Basically. Yes, it is. Absolutely is. <laughs> and then the next morning, Anthony Michael Hall and the blonde cheerleader girlfriend wake up having very little memory of the night before, but knowing they had sex and they're She's both okay with it. She's okay with that. <laughs> She's, She's like, I think I had a pretty good time. Like, so that's fucked up on 19 different yeah, levels. Yeah. And that was... That was 1984. Right. That was not the 20s. No. So there's a level at which we, you know, go, saying, oh, well, it was a different time. Like, I mean, I went to college in the 80s. There was awareness of rape. Right. If the awareness, the conversation had not advanced to where it is today. The awareness is not where it was today. But I think we still knew that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And yet... I remember watching 16 Candles and having no problem with it. I don't think anyone watching it at the time had a problem with it. No, you probably thought it was funny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is where it's hard looking back now. And I don't I, I don't have an answer to this question. Like, for myself, what is kind of disqualifying? I don't know what crosses the line. I mean, I think for me, you got to part of it when you were talking about the intention of it. Mm-hmm. A movie like Gone with the Wind, which I agree, just, it's not, that's not accidental right. environmental issues. That That is a full-on evil agenda Mm -hmm. that movie has, Mm -hmm. and I think it's perfectly fair game to rip it apart on those grounds. So that's one level, I think. There are movies that are intentionally offensive that, for me, get a complete pass. And in that category, I would put Airplane, (laughs) uh, Blazing Saddles. It was supposed to be offensive in right. 1973. It's, right. It was. It's still offensive now, but it's that's the point of it, mm-hmm. that it's commenting on racism. And so, yeah, I don't know. Like, there are movies like Animal House. Right. Which I, st- I loved as a kid. Mm-hmm. I still love. I think it's a, one of the great comedies. It is... To call it problematic is <laughs> in under like it's seriously fucked up in a dozen different ways. I mean, there's the punchline of one of the jokes is that you know the guy's in bed with a girl and she says, "Oh, by the way, I'm only 13." You yeah. know, there's <laughs> like statutory rape. Like it's horribly racist in parts of it, and yet for some reason I'm okay with that. And then there are other movies like uh, Revenge of the Nerds, mm-hmm. which has also just super creepy rape scenes by modern standards right. that were just played for laughs back then right. that I can't watch anymore. And I don't I don't know. I don't know where the line is. Part of it is if it's a good movie or not. Like, I mean, ignoring everything else, Animal House is a better movie than Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> okay. 
So that is a factor. I don't know if it should be a factor. Right. Some of these, I think, and this is totally, maybe totally arbitrary, but like 16 Candles and Revenge of the Nerds, those to me are creepier <laughs> than something like Animal House. Okay. In part because those were the nice guy characters. Yes. Those were the sensitive, nerdy, Right. why doesn't anybody like the nice guy, versus these kind of alpha males of the right. Animal House that right. were self-consciously obnoxious. Right. Like, we were supposed to think the nerds... Were the heroes. The nerds ...were the sympathetic right. heroes who deserve... Hot chicks. Hot chicks. <laughs> That's what I was. <laughs> I was going to say happiness. No. I was trying no. to avoid saying they deserved... No. They deserved chicks. hot chicks. Like, yes. Yes, no. That was who the audience was supposed to identify with, and if the nerd wanted to be with the cheerleader, he deserved to be with the cheerleader because he was nice, mm -hmm. and he was smart, and why not? Right. Which, to me, just seems creepier well, now, I because mean, it yeah. plays into this whole, you know, this kind of Gamergate misogyny right. thing that we is still going on now, right? Yes. Toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity. See, we didn't have names for these things in the 80s. <laughs> now we do. And so I was looking around at different websites, and there's like a million listicles out there of 19 movies you loved as a kid that are... <laughs> trash. <laughs> that are trash <laughs> by today's day. And, you know, 16 Candles is on all yeah. of those lists. Animal House is on a lot Breakfast of those lists. Breakfast at Tiffany's is probably on... Bre exactly. Breakfast at Tiffany's is another good example, which is a really good movie if you just ignore that one Right. And again, element. that character didn't need to exist. <laughs> Somebody decided we need to have Andy Rooney in Buck Teeth with this terribly caricatured accent as the upstairs neighbor. He, that didn't have to be the choice. Right. You certainly didn't have to have Mickey Rooney right. play that character. So it's, that's where it's just like, well, I don't even understand why you picked but that I don't think any, I don't think anyone batted an eye at that at probably the time. Probably not. No, probably not. And so is that a disqualifying element? I don't know what I even mean when I say disqualifying, right. except right. that it means I don't want to watch that movie. Right. I have trouble enjoying that movie nowadays. Right. I mean, I have watched Breakfast at Tiffany's a few times, and every time I watch it, you know, you're just kind of flipping channels, and you're fine, and it's fine, and it's fine, and then you're just like, oh, fuck right. <laughs> <laughs> comes on screen and you're like, shit, turn that the yeah. fuck off. And so yeah. it has to go away. So it's, it's, it is sort of one of those things where it's just like, I can't, I just can't overlook that. I can't get past that. I mean, and it's, it's in film and it's also in television. You tried to introduce me to Doctor Who, older Doctor Who episodes, <laughs> which included talons yeah. of Wayne Chiang. That was a poor choice on that my part. That was a very poor choice on everybody's part that was involved in that. Because <laughs> it, it does have a Chinese character who is played by a white actor. Yes. In With the sort, sort of man thing going on. He's a sorcerer yeah. of some sort. It's just... Yeah, that was my bad. Yeah, that was that was everybody's <laughs> bad. That was everybody's bad. But, again, at the time, that would have been the norm in terms of casting. I don't think anyone would have thought yeah. for a moment about that. In much the same way, I mean, let's let's talk about what's happening currently and mm -hmm. go forward even, well, I think there are things that happened a couple of years ago that aren't okay now. I yeah. think things are changing very quickly. Yeah. But we've had Jared Leto and Eddie Redmayne mm. and uh, what's his name on Transparent yeah. playing transgender characters. Right. Ten years from now, that is not going to be a hell of a lot better right. than Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. And I think already people are starting to 
look at that and go, hmm, really? Right. Right. Is that okay? Which is the same with sort of what we saw, you know, you go back five, ten years where it was okay to say, oh, something is gay or retarded. Like, these were things that were, it was okay to kind of use those as jokes and insults. And now, hopefully, (laughs) we're at a place where that's just a no-go. We don't do that. Right. Okay, well, I don't know that we've come to any conclusions I don't whatsoever think we about. Have. I, I didn't think we would solve this topic, and <laughs> we haven't. I do think it's going to come up a little bit as we go into the movie we're discussing today, uh, Dead Poet Society. I don't think it's too terribly offensive, but if memory serves, there are a couple of moments that this issue is going to come up. So I think we've come down. I have been right in ignoring all of these movies that I have no, made. No, that I would not want that to be. I have made away. the right no. choice, the moral choice, really, to not support <laughs> art with any isms in it. Oh, oh. Well, then you were just shit out of luck. You were just out of the art appreciation business at this point. <laughs> then I had religion. Then I had a vision. I could not turn from their revel in derision. Then I saw the Congo creeping through the black, cutting through the forest with a golden track. Then I saw the Congo creeping through the black, cutting through the forest with a golden track. Then I saw the Congo creeping through the black, cutting through the forest with a golden track. Then I saw the Congo so on today's episode we are going to be watching 1989's dead poets society and i think we can leap right in this week and i can begin by confessing that i don't have any particularly compelling reason to make you watch dead poets society so why are we doing this (laughs) So that's an interesting question. Let's talk about that. Okay. You know, last week we had a listener email that asked the question about canon, what makes something canon, Mm -hmm. who decides that a movie needs to be watched by generation after generation. And I realized, thinking about it this week, that there are a couple of different answers to that question. There's the critical canon, which is the influential movies, the critically acclaimed movies, the sight and sound list of the greatest films of all time. And then there's kind of this cultural canon. And, you know, the example that comes to mind is the Shawshank Redemption, right? <laughs> Love Shawshank. <laughs> Everybody loves Shawshank. It's, it's the number one movie on IMDb's <laughs> top 250 films of all time, and has been for years. But it turns up on nobody's list, critics' list, mm-hmm. of the greatest films of all time. It's not on the sight and sound list. Like, it's not even a player in that field. So I think where I was going with this is I think Dead Poet Society is more that kind of movie. It did win an Oscar. It won an Oscar for screenplay. It was nominated for several more, including actor, director, and picture. I don't think it's going to end up on a lot of lists of people's favorite films of all time, or critics' lists, certainly. But I think it's a movie that is well-beloved. I think it's remembered as certainly the iconic role for the late, great Robin Williams, who said it was his favorite movie. There's also, I think, the cultural cachet element, which kind of goes back to the the origins of the unenthusiastic critic, which Mm -hmm. is something we started in part, so you would get the jokes of things. Mm -hmm. And as an example, about a year or so ago, Saturday Night Live did a sketch called Farewell Mr. Bunting that was based on Dead Poet Society. And I think it says something that they can do a sketch based on a movie that's more than 25 years old and trust that everybody's going to get the joke. 
Except me. Well, that's the interesting <laughs> thing about this is that I remember, you probably don't even remember because you forget things, <laughs> but I remember showing you that sketch because I actually thought it was the rare SNL sketch that was actually funny. Mm -hmm. And so I pulled it up on YouTube and I showed it to you and you probably laughed politely. And it never once occurred to me that you had not actually seen Dead Poet Society. Well, I'm good at faking it. Um, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I vaguely remember you showing me that video. Was it they were standing on the desks? And well, my... okay, we don't need to spoil the joke so, for everyone. We'll it's a year-old it. SNL skit. <laughs> we'll link to it in safe. the show notes. So, I mean, I knew enough of Dead Poet Society that I knew that there was this grand gesture of the students standing on their desks and saying, oh, captain, my captain. So, I mean, if that's all I needed to know to get the sketch, then I guess I got it. I, I'm sure it was funny. <laughs> 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 Okay, so do you know anything else about this movie? Uh, that is pretty much all I know. I think he's a humanities teacher, but I'm just basing that off of, I don't know that anybody would be particularly inspired by a STEM teacher um, to stand on their desks and say, oh, Captain, my Captain, but maybe, you know... Biology is very you think interesting. Biology teachers do sure. not inspire that sort no, of devotion. I mean, they could, it's just it's going to be a humanities teacher. Um, and I <laughs> well, think, that's not true. There's a whole genre of these movies. The inspiration. Right. Okay. So this is okay. okay. So in my head, I think I also always confuse it with the movie where Brendan Fraser is hiding that he's Jewish because that's another like waspy <laughs> private school so I think I sort of conflate those in my head so I'm like oh that's the one where he's hiding the fact wow. that he's Jewish I don't even remember what that uh, movie I don't remember called. either um, and which is why I can probably confuse the two School Ties, School Ties I think that is called yes so in my head those two are the same movie and then when we were and that one you've seen no oh. I just know <laughs> I think I've seen a picture like the poster of like Brendan Fraser kind of furtively trying to hide his Star of David necklace in his shirt but I have not seen that movie no uh, I'm sure it ends well um and then I was trying to like figure out I don't know where this falls on the sort of inspirational teacher continuum so is it the sort of elegant uh Sidney Poitier in To Serve With Love? Is it, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer trying to save black and brown youth from the streets with like candy bars and Dylan? Or is it, you know, Edward James almost trying to reach these kids? So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where it falls on that continuum, but I have not seen Dead Poet Society, so I do not know much about it at all. Okay, so I was, I've been thinking about this continuum a lot, actually. Um, so there is this whole subgenre of movies, um, going back to, you know, Goodbye Mr. Chips, To Sir With Love, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, Dangerous Minds, Stand and Deliver, Mr. Holland's Opus, the whole slew of these films. But when I was thinking about them, because Dead Poet Society is white, upper-class kids. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of those movies are inner-city Students of Color. To right. Stir With Love was, Dangerous Minds was, Stand and Deliver, uh, Lean On Me. There's all these movies. And I was trying to figure out, and I think it's, we don't need to talk about it now, but maybe we can, after we watch the movie, talk about whether there's a dividing line on what these movies deal with in terms of class and what inspiration looks like, hmm. whether it's different. Because mm -hmm. I think there's there's two general modes of 
the teacher is either trying to teach the kids to be disciplined and rigorous and, you know, to work hard. Right. Or the teacher is trying to teach the kids to be, uh, to question authority and to be free thinkers Mm -hmm. and all of that. And that's something I wanted to think about again going into this movie, which I have not rewatched. Sometimes when we watch these movies together, I will rewatch them to prepare. This one I didn't want to, in part because I'm afraid it won't hold up. (laughs) So I wanted to go into it fresh and just see if it still holds up for me. Um, It's a movie I liked when it first came out. It's I didn't love it, but I certainly liked it. I would have seen it the summer after my sophomore year in college. I was a literature major. This was so in that sense, this is kind of right in my wheelhouse. Speaking to you. Yes, I was a white boy lit major. Mm-hmm. Did you stand on a desk? I don't remember standing on a desk, okay. no. It's not too late, though. I could still. I think that means you had shitty teachers. I think that's what that means. Your teachers Maybe so. failed you. Maybe so. I didn't have Robin Williams. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what's your what's your experience with Robin Williams? We haven't talked about that. I actually have not seen very many uh, Robin Williams films. I have seen... I think what are considered his lesser <laughs> gloved performances. <laughs> his lower brow. How do I see so many shitty movies? Um, That's so, the eternal mystery. Right, yeah. So I've seen Toys, which is terrible. It's terrible. It's not a good movie. It is terrible. No. But it's it's weird. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, I have seen Mrs. Doubtfire, which I don't think is considered shitty. I think that's a pretty solid, yeah. you know... Mainstream comedy. Uh, I have seen What Dreams May Come. Again, not a good film. No. (laughs) But beautiful to look at. Yeah. And I have seen uh, Patch Adams. Which is horrible. Well. No, it's really bad, Patch Adams. I think I learned a good headache trick from it, though. Like, he tells the little girl to cup her nose or something and breathe and it helps her headache and I think I tried it and I think it actually worked so for that alone I'm not sure you should be taking medical advice I, from Pat I'm Adams. pretty much that's I hate going to the doctor so I just watch Patch Adams in house <laughs> and then go from there I think I have lupus so <laughs> I mean I think yeah I think Dead Poet Society is I think it's more you know middle brow respectable than Patch Adams but it's kind of in the same vein of the character he plays of fighting back against this repressive, sure. humorless society. Mm-hmm. I think it's better than Patch Adams. That I feel confident saying. Well, that's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> okay, so what are you expecting from Dead Poet Society? I'm not expecting to enjoy it, only because I don't tend to enjoy films in privileged spaces. like this. So it's an all-boys Private school, it, it is, boarding yes, school. Thing. So that's not really six, late fifties or early sixties. Yeah. So that's not really going to be my scene. <laughs> but maybe I'll get some good literature out of it. I can hear some good literature read. That would be nice. I'm hearing rumors, John, about some unorthodox teaching methods in your classroom. Break out! I'm going to do it. John Keating. He began by teaching English. Now he's changing lives. I got the part. Tear out the entire introduction. Who put you up to it? Was it this new man, this, uh, Mr. Keating? Are we just playing around out here, or do we mean what we say? Vision, honor, discipline, rip, fret, tear. What is this dead poet society? I want names. This is a battle, a war. The casualties could be your hearts and souls. For the first time in my whole life, I know what I want to do. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits. Poetry, romance, love, 
These are what we stay alive for. That's beautiful. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. Arbidius! Sit down. What the hell is going on here? Seize the day. Touchstone Pictures presents Robin Williams as John Keating. He was the inspiration that made their lives extraordinary. Dead Poet Society. Okay, we're back, and during the break, Nikki and I watched Dead Poet Society. Uh, at this point, we're going to venture into spoiler territory, so if you are the <laughs> other person on the planet who has never seen Dead Poet Society... You made and, a good choice. <laughs> and if you actually want to, unlike Nakia, you should go do that now and come back to us later. Okay, so Dead Poet Society. This was, just to do a little background at the top, uh, the year was 1989, the director was Peter Weir who had previously directed Picnic at Hanging Rock, Gallipoli, Year of Living Dangerously, Witness. Um, he went on to do The Truman Show and Master and Commander. He hasn't actually made that many movies. This was probably his one of his biggest hits. Um, it was written by Tom Schulman. It was, it was actually a huge hit. It was one of the top ten money-making films of 1989. Just to put it in perspective, Dead Poet Society made more money than The Little Mermaid, which came out the same year. Fucking crime! Ursula! Oh my god. <laughs> Fucking crime. It was nominated for several Oscars. It won the Oscar for Screenplay, and it was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director. It was not necessarily a critical hit. You can look at some of the reviews from that time if you want. Uh, Roger Ebert wrote... Dead Poet Society is a collection of pious platitudes masquerading as this courageous stand in favor of something. <laughs> it is, of course, inevitable that the brilliant teacher will eventually be fired from the school, and when his students stood on their desks to protest his dismissal, I was so moved I wanted to throw up. <laughs> he says it's not the worst of the recent movies about teachers, but it may, however, be the most shameless in its attempt to pander to an adolescent audience. Mm. Uh, Vincent Canby in the New York Times called it Peter Weir's dim, sad new movie. And he suggested that the movie accepts the Keating character at romantic face value and kind of lets him off the hook on some of his responsibilities and culpability mm -hmm. and what happens in the movie. And then I will throw in this. Uh, this is Josh Larson, who is uh, a Chicago critic. He's one of the hosts of the Film Spotting podcast, which is excellent. He wrote about this in his, on his website, Larson on Film, and he's, he recognized a lot of the problems with the movie, and then he said, Still, my main defense of Dead Poet Society comes back to what it means to me, or meant when I saw it at 15 and had begun to take the written word seriously. Early on, at a ceremony marking the beginning of the school year, Welton's students pass a candle meant to honor the light of knowledge. Dead Poet Society did and does more than that for me. It's about knowledge as something liberating and lively. So it's that's so sort of the nostalgic... Looking back on Dead Poet Society, which I get, I, you know, like I said earlier, this is a movie I liked when I first saw it. Um, but okay, so let's get into this. Nikia, where does Dead Poet Society rank on the Pritchard appreciation scale? At the bottom. Oh, no. It doesn't even graph. Come on. It doesn't even graph. There's, you know, the, the Pritchard scale as described in the movie, there's importance on one axis and perfection on the other axis. Mm -hmm. It's a zero, zero. 
It's really. Plot. There's no... Point for me. <laughs> In the immortal words of Blaine Edwards and Antoine Merriweather of Men on Film, hated it. <laughs> hated it. Hated it. Wow. Hated that it. is a strong reaction. Because I I love literature and I love... I, I won't say that I love poetry, but I appreciate poetry. I enjoy poetry. And I've actually had some really excellent English teachers that gave me an appreciation of the written word that I just, I mean, is, is invaluable to me. And he didn't teach them anything. I think he was a shitty teacher. <laughs> I think he was a shitty teacher. And so I went to the movie knowing that I really probably wasn't going to enjoy it because, again, it's a prep school full of white boys learning about poetry or whatever. But I thought at the very least I would get some good kind of nuggets of poetry, some mm -hmm. good kind of analysis sort of thing. And I just, and maybe I guess that is what I got was just some crumbs of poetry. No, I, I have to confess I had the exact same reaction watching it this time. And I was a hardcore literature major yeah. in college. <laughs> I did hardcore literary theory and criticism. And the teaching in this movie is bullshit. It's shitty. It's really, really bad. Okay, so this is yet another, not, not really a review, more of an article. This is an article by Kevin J. H. Detmar, professor of English at Pomona College. He wrote a piece for The Atlantic that begins, I've never hated a film quite the way I hate <laughs> Dead Poet Society. <laughs> Dead Poet Society might well be the most enduring and beloved picture ever made about teaching the humanities... And then he goes on to talk about what a problematic presentation of the humanities that is and what a terrible defense of the humanities it is. Mm -hmm. And he says, for what Keating models for his students isn't literary criticism or analysis or even study. In fact, it's not even good, careful reading. Rather, it's the literary equivalent of fandom. Exactly. Worse, it's anti-intellectual. Passion alone, divorced from the thrilling intellectual work of real analysis, is empty, even dangerous. When we simply feel a poem carried away by the sound of words rather than actually reading it, we're rather likely to get it wrong. Exactly. Yeah. And he, he kind of ties this into this whole crisis in the humanities that's going on in college. Well, right this now. idea that people think humanities is bullshit and it's fluff. Right. And that there is no actual and they, rigorous oh, We just sit around expressing right. our feelings. It's like, no, there's such a thing as close reading. There's such a thing as analysis. There's such a thing as parsing. Like, that's a very real thing. Yeah. And it's an extremely important skill in just about every job that you could possibly have. It teaches you to read. It teaches you to think. And that was his whole thing, was he opened the class of, you know, this big speech about thinking for yourself and then tells them to rip out the introduction that talks about sort of the analysis right. of poetry. And we can talk about how ridiculous that graph is. I mean, it was. The, the Pritchard graph was deliberately ridiculous. a straw man of just like right. what bad academic yes. thinking looks like. But I think it's important that you have these sort of analytical tools when you're reading these things. Like, yes, you can say that's a beautiful poem. Why is it a beautiful poem? Like, right. let's break it down. Why does it work? Why doesn't it work? What is rhyme scheme? What is, you know, so that you could then appreciate the actual craft of, 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 creating a poem or writing a piece of literature. Right. Okay. I, I need to step back and I'll try to be the, the, the defender here. Do not defend this. <laughs> Refrigerator magnet poetry bullshit. Like, it is such <laughs> terribleness. Okay. The point I was about to make, however, mm -hmm. is, you know, when I watched Stand and Deliver, I didn't come away from it saying, well, I didn't learn anything about calculus. Right. Well, because they cheated. 
Oh, okay. We're, we're not talking about that. Okay. <laughs> no, he was a better teacher. I would argue. <laughs> for James Olmos was a better teacher. But okay, go ahead. I, I agree. But the point <laughs> is, asking Dead Poet Society to show us what literary analysis is like is sure. probably an unfair standard Okay. to hold it to. Probably. <laughs> Though I agree with you that... Mm-hmm. It was shitty. I do think, however, what it does show is it's it's still crappy. We don't. I don't think we hear a complete poem. We do not throughout the entire movie. No. You know, we get snippets of lines, often misquoted, yes. definitely misinterpreted yes. in several instances. Yes. Quoting from the road not taken and completely missing the point of that, for example. But yeah, then this. To me, the most egregious scene in the film is the one where Keating, through this laying on of hands, summons this poem out of Ethan Hawke's It is garbage. <laughs> he just spouts character. out words, and they're like, it's brilliant. That That is just, if nothing else, an insult to the Poets art of poetry. Everywhere, yes. Like, poetry is hard work. It is craft, and this idea that you just work him up into an emotional froth and just draw this just poetry. Free associate a poem. Right. <laughs> and this, I mean, this was a problem in college. I remember the kids that came in and just thought they had poetry in their souls and could just spout it out, and then resisted the idea that you actually had to learn anything about rhythm and scansion and internal rhyme and like all of these things. I just want to express myself, man. No. No, no you have nothing to express. Okay, let's try to back up to a little overview here. I actually, I, I mentioned earlier, I deliberately did not rewatch this movie before we watched it together because I wanted to go into it fresh. I was not disappointed with the filmmaking. I thought it's a well-made film. The direction is fine. The acting is not offensively bad in any... Unremarkable, for the most part. <laughs> Except when Robin goes full-on Robin and starts imitating Brando and whomever else in class. It's pretty unremarkable. That's a little bit, yeah. That's just Robin Williams yeah. that we stand up and obviously improvised. Yeah. And, yeah. Did you find the movie entertaining? No. Apart from... I did not. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> what I saw was poetry sort of being used to validate entitled and selfish behavior. Mm. Like they were not falling in love with poetry or literature. They were kind of falling in love with the idea that, you know, the world and everyone in it would kind of bend to their will if they had the right rhyme. Like the perfect stanza becomes this sort of open sesame. Like I just have to say these couple lines and her panties will fall off. I just have to say these couple lines and, you know, I can be an actor and my dad will love me. And it's just, I just, I did not. It just all felt really entitled to me. And Yeah. (laughs) nothing felt earned at all well this is and I I have experienced this before it's one of the horrors of getting older and being a movie fan is when you start being sympathetic towards the villains yes and that was my experience watching this movie like I kind of thought the evil headmaster was right when he was saying you know at these boys age Teaching them to just to be free thinkers and to rebel against authority is dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know what he said, and these are not these are not even college kids; these are high school right. kids. 
the evil headmaster was saying, you know, just prepare them for college and everything else will take care of itself. And part of me was like, yeah, kind of. I think that's kind of true. And his friend, who's the Latin teacher, and, and we should just say every other teacher in this school is horrible. <laughs> like, there's there's Keating, the, the exciting, right. you know, performer. And then every other teacher we see is just absolutely humorless. Just and yes, it's just yeah. like... But the Latin teacher is kind of Keating's friend. And he says something like, he says, you run a big risk teaching these kids to be artists or telling them that they're artists. Because when they figure out that they're not Rembrandt or Shakespeare, they're going to hate you for it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of true, too. Especially since, as you have said, we don't see him teaching them any of the skills no. or any of the craft no. or any of the discipline <laughs> involved yeah. in being an artist. It's just run off to the cave and read shitty poetry. The Indian Cave! Because, of course, you go with the your bros Indian cave. and you go to the old Indian cave and you read poetry. Yeah. Shittily. <laughs> Without any real Without understanding. Without any real understanding of, of what, what you're, you're reading. reading. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, let's try to back up. You just... <laughs> Okay, let's talk about some characters. Okay. Okay. I don't remember anyone's name. That's fine. I will I will run over the characters. So we have first of all, I mean the two there's like I think there's like seven kids in the Dead Poet Society. Really only two of them three of them three, yeah. have actual storylines. So there's uh Neil, who is Robert Sean Leonard, he's the one that wants to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of the leader of the group. Mm -hmm. There is uh, Todd, is Ethan Hawke, who's the shy, tongue-tied kid. And then there's Knox Overstreet, uh, played by Josh Charles. He gets the quote-unquote love story. Of the woman he does not know. Th okay, I can't with this movie. Sounds like Nikia would like to jump in and start talking about the Knox Overstreet storyline. So First of all, his name is Knox Overstreet. <laughs> <laughs> Which, let's let's be fair, makes you predisposed to him. <laughs> it probably does. It, it sets off all kinds of alarms in my head. Um, yeah. It just, you know, brings to mind subprime lending and redlining in neighborhoods. It's just a, it's just a, not a good name. It's a, it's an oppressive name. Um, I, I actually think they said he was going into banking. And that's who he's going to be. Wells motherfucking Fargo. That's who he's going to be. That's his, that's the asshole. Okay, can we come back to the movie? We, sure. I, though I think my digression is much more interesting than this movie. But yeah, so his whole thing is he falls in love with a girl he sees once. Yep. And then becomes obsessed. And we don't we don't even see the scene in which he first meets her. Like he goes to dinner at this house. They meet at the door. So they meet she at the answers door. the door. Right. There's no conversation. But no, that's that, it. Presumably they had dinner together, right. but we don't see that conversation. No, there's just sort of, of this that. long, slow pause where you see him sort of staring at her weirdly and not saying anything. Creepy. 
Uh, and but that's how we're supposed to, you know, realize that he's fallen in love with this woman. He does not know. Right. And then is obsessed with her for the entire film, stalks her throughout the film <laughs> with shitty poetry and weeds that he picked up somewhere. And she's like basically engaged to somebody else. And he's like, yeah. I don't care because I have poetry on my side. He, sh <laughs> he shows up at her school, follows her into right? her classroom. Right. Stan's reading a poem and it's a wrote, public school. really bad. He the leaves through the really cafeteria bad. and takes a piece of bread from the cafeteria <laughs> of the public school. You rich ass piece of shit. These kids have to like eat okay, I don't reduced know. Was lunch. That a public school? Do we know that I she? I think it's a public school. I mean, she was pretty rich too. Well, she she probably yeah. was. Whatever. He shouldn't be stealing food. <laughs> <laughs> Weird thing to focus on. It okay. speaks to a character. Okay. So yeah, so he just it's just completely unearned. And then it ends with him, she invites him, out of pity, more than anything, <laughs> to this house party. And he's assuming that this is her grand gesture of love and she's fallen in love with him. No, no, she's there with her boyfriend. And he gets drunk. And then somehow they end up on the couch. He sits down and she's basically knocked out drunk next to him. Right, or she's completely or passed out. Passed out. And he's all carpe diem, which is apparently Latin for I'm going to kiss this unconscious girl and then tries to make out with her. So, yeah, I have a problem with that because it's fucking gross. You know, like when there was a, a few years ago where the like, I think the guy's name was like pickup artist or whatever. And he would give quote unquote nerdy, nice guys tips on how to pick up women. And his thing was like, you neg them, I think it was, or like mm -hmm. you say negative things yeah. to them. So this is ba Keating is basically that dude, except he's like, just say poetry and the, they will fall into your lap. Well, Keating did not tell. He basically knocks did. over street to go. He out basically did. Well, that's, but that's what they took from the class. Why? Because they didn't actually study fucking poetry <laughs> or analysis or critical reading. You know what you need to learn? People skills. You know what you need to learn? How to read a fucking room, how to read social cues. If someone's unconscious, they probably don't want to make out with you. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to undersell the the crime here, but all we we do, we see him kiss her forehead while she sleeps. It's a violation. That's it is. It, you know we because it's entitled. He thinks he somehow deserves that. Again, does not know this girl. Right. She does not know him. Right. Well, she is. I think she is almost literally the only female character who has a speaking part in the film. I think a couple of the kids' mothers chime in. Well, they brought like two chicks back to the right, cave. Right, and they were just the yeah. two chicks that he brought back to the cave. But right. they, all of those other characters have maybe half a dozen lines right. of dialogue between right. them. Right. So she is the only actual character, and she is probably the least developed. She is the pretty blonde. Mm -hmm. Cheerleader. Cheerleader. Mm -hmm. That's all she is. And that's enough to fall in love with her. Right. So I'm hearing that the love story did not really Because work it wasn't a love story. Thing. It was not a love story at all. Like, not at all. She goes to his school and says, can you stop stalking me? Yeah. And he continues to stalk her and says, if you just go out on this one date with me, then I'll leave you. Like, that's just not... These are the lessons that we're teaching our men is just, you just keep going. No doesn't mean no. It means you just keep trying. And then she will fall in love with you. Well, there is a long, proud history in cinema of yes. that lesson. Absolutely. Including some movies of which you are very fond. Lloyd Gobbler! <laughs> you know what? <laughs> <laughs> there is a difference between 
you know, assaulting someone on a couch and holding up a boombox outside their house. There is. It's a difference of degrees. It is a difference of degrees. Okay. <laughs> Incidentally, that was the same year as this, and Roger Ebert thought John Cusack should have gotten the nomination that Robin Williams got. I don't know about or that. say anything. Well, I don't think Robin Williams should have received a nomination, but I don't know that Lloyd Dobler was worthy of a nomination either. <laughs> okay, we're going to come back to that later, but okay. let's let's uh, talk some more. Do you have anything else to say about Knox Overstreet? You pretty much... Watch out for Knox Overstreet. He is going to <laughs> bankrupt the black and brown community through subprime lending. He is going to be at the head of it. If we can go back in time and stop him now, that would be the best plan. He's going to get a bailout, though. Right. No, he's going to be fine. Knox yeah. is going to be fine. <laughs> and he's going to remember those two lines of poetry he learned. Okay. Super awesome. <laughs> so let's... I'm in banking, but I have a soul. <laughs> I'm deep. I like poetry. <laughs> the fuck out of here. Uh, I hope my listeners realize how hard it is for me to direct these conversations. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> let's switch over. Let's talk about let's let's save the big dramatic storyline for last. Let's talk about uh, Todd, the Ethan Hawke character, who I thought was like going to be dyslexic or something, and then was just like, "I'm shy." You thought it was going to turn out that well, because he said, like, "I can't read." He kept saying he couldn't. He didn't want to read. He's not Jordan Catalano. Well, that, I thought that he I was like, "Oh, he's dyslexic or something," and it's going to be you know a thing. And his brother was valedictorian, and this is going to be his big sort of bridge to overcome. No, he's just a shy, like just <laughs> void. He did, he wasn't anything. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, he doesn't really have a whole lot. I mean, he's the one that leads the revolution at the end of the movie. Was there a By standing on the desk? By standing on the desk, yes. Uh, so I think that's that's supposed to be his arc, is that he, you know, finds his voice. That's and, a weak-ass arc. And becomes the guy that can stand up and do what's right. And can we talk okay, about that? Okay, no, we're not going to talk about that yet. I know where you want to go. We will talk about it. Let's, okay. So we basically have nothing to say about Todd. Todd was kind of a non-entity. Todd was nothing. Let's skip over, let's skip over Todd. Though has ended up with the best career out of anyone else who was in this movie. He developed a wrinkle between his eyebrows. <laughs> that does most of the work for Ethan Hawke. It really does. Let's be real. It's this line here. This is all of Ethan Hawke's power. That's where all of his it's acting here. happens. This is his horcrux or whatever. What is, it? is that what it's called? <laughs> no, but why? <laughs> <laughs> Am I using that reference wrong? <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about Neil, and this is the big the big storyline in the movie. So he suddenly decides about halfway <laughs> through the movie. Well, first of all, he has the evil father, played by uh, what's his name, Kenneth something. <laughs> Who plays a lot of evil fathers. <laughs> who demands that he's going to be a doctor. But under Mr. Keating's loving guidance, Neil somehow decides he wants to be an actor. And he has to sneak off and forge a permission slip and go be in the play. Playing Puck in what looks like a frankly terrible production. Terrible production. Um, and then what happens? I can't quite remember. He dramatically commits suicide in the most dramatic way possible. 
Maybe that's what he took from Frost, stopping by the woods on a snowy evening. He takes his little puck crown and lies it at the yes. open window with the snow is falling. It's very beautiful. Crown of thorns, frames. in case we've missed any symbolism here. Walks downstairs, sits at his father's desk in his study, and shoots himself. Yes. Because his dad didn't want him to act. Yes. That was some bullshit. Because it was supposed to be this dramatic moment, and I was supposed to feel something for him. I felt nothing. Because it was totally out of left field. There was, They did not imbue that character with enough to make it make sense that he would kill himself in right. that moment. Yeah, it, to- it totally seems to come out of nowhere. Nowhere. Uh, I mean, if, if Todd had killed himself, maybe. Maybe. Because that kid seemed to have some emotional problems. He really did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, Neil seems to be the one who has it all together, and yeah, and then he suddenly has this one setback and can't do what he's been dreaming of doing for all of three months yeah, at this point. At least. His three-month-long dream, and so he shoots himself in the head. It. I don't remember if that worked for me when I first saw this movie. It did not work for me at all this time. It was... The most ridiculous, melodramatic, over-the-top cheese fest possible. It's better than his puck. <sighs> his puck was not. It wasn't good. Very good. It wasn't good. No. Well, he never actually learned how to read iambic pentameters. So that's again. You see, give him this some, is what I'm saying. This is something Mr. Keaton should have covered with him and never did. Because that part's not important. <laughs> Why would you need to actually understand what you're saying? Okay, so then. Mr. Keating, of course, gets blamed for Neil's suicide, though that makes no real sense. He poisoned them with poetry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or does it make sense? This is, I mean, this is one of those reviews I read raised that question of whether he actually is responsible because Keating kind of taught them this irresponsible, don't let anyone tell you you can't do what you want to do and march to your own drummer and... Don't conform to anyone else's expectations and find your own path. And the moment this kid is thwarted from doing that, he decides to put a bullet through his head. Yes. So. But the message is think for yourself. Yeah. But he did not teach them to think for themselves. (laughs) What did he teach them? He taught them to suck the marrow out of life. (laughs) That's what that means. And not handle, again, like I said, it was all about validating this really sort of childish behavior like if you teach people to think if you teach people to you know be critically minded they tend to make better decisions okay so this this kind of comes back to the question we discussed a little bit i I raised the question in our preliminary discussion about these teacher movies and whether they're different with different classes Mm -hmm. and where i was going with that is and this is kind of what you're saying is this that what Keating is actually teaching these kids is this entitlement and this you can do whatever you want right. to do thing. And right. you can, like, I'm not sure the low-income urban kids <laughs> in a lot of these other teacher movies would be taught the same entitlement, the same you can do whatever you want to do. No. What Keating is teaching these kids requires this foundation of privilege. Right. And relies on that. Like, like you said... Knox Overstreet is going to be fine. Right. Like, all of these kids are going to be fine. Noanda is going to be fine. Right. Um, Neil, as it turns out, is not going to be fine. Because Neil's a bitch. So, I mean, I think one of the sort of 
one of the first activities he does with the class of having them get out of their chairs and go and stand up on the desk at the front of the class, right? Yeah. And his whole thing is, this is changing your perspective. You need to be looking at the world from a different point of view. And it's like, right. you're looking at the world above everyone else. Right. I'm right. telling you right. wealthy white men to stand on top of the de this desk and look out. And this is a totally new perspective. This is going to change everything. It's like, okay, so this is what we're telling them, right? Is that they are somehow elevated that to, in order to sort of expand and change their minds or change the, the way they see things, they need to ha be above people. Right. That doesn't really happen in that way in other movies where we have teachers going into sort of low-income urban communities to teach, you know, disadvantaged students. What happens there is they say, let me take you out of the classroom. So you take them and you take them to, you know, I think she took uh, in um, Dangerous Minds, she took them to like a theme park or something. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you take them to a museum or you take them to nature and let them see that there are things outside of their communities or marginalized communities that they could be more but that more means interacting not above everything else but interacting with this sort of wider world that everyone has said that you don't have access to it's showing you that you you know you are just as entitled to these spaces as everyone else right. is so i think if we're talking about kind of class difference that's how these sort of movies engage with those different groups in that way yeah, and I mean, I think I think what I was thinking about was that there's this, and I think I said this earlier, that there's sort of these two modes you can split these movies into. It's either we need to teach the kids to work really hard mm -hmm. and buckle down and make something of their lives, mm -hmm. or you have the Dead Poet Society, School of Rock mm -hmm. mode of where... We need to teach these kids to have fun. Right. And we need to teach these kids to rebel and think for themselves. And that's where I feel like there is a class difference. Because mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think anyone is is in the inner city kid movies is teaching them to rebel against authority and cut loose. Keating is like introducing chaos into this very buttoned down society. Right. And I think that's a model that sort of relies on the safety net of privilege right, right. that these kids have. Because they can't get in too much trouble. Right. Right. Unless they shoot themselves in the Right. Head, well, then, which, you know, yeah, that's, that was yeah. the mistake Neil made. Yes. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the ending of the movie or this, the whole, what we call the rebellion, which is not a rebellion. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is another reason why this is a bad argument for the humanities, because one of the arguments for the humanities is it teaches you to be a better person. And I don't think this does. No. Like, Keating taught them to think for themselves and march to their, the beat of their own drum and rebel against authority. He didn't necessarily teach them to be good people. And when push comes to shove and when Keating's ass is on the line, they all sell him out. Yes. They all sign the form that says Keating was responsible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, at the end of the movie, they stand up on the fucking desks and say, oh, captain, my captain. He's already been fired at this point. Right. He's already been kicked out. They're risking said, nothing. He's out the door. They're risking nothing, really. Right. Um, except maybe a paddling. <laughs> Which, what? <laughs> right. But they didn't do the right thing. Interestingly, the only one who did do the right thing is Nawanda. <laughs> we are not calling him that. <laughs> we're, we're calling him Nawanda. He prefers to be called... Nawanda. Uh, I don't remember his actual Charlie. I think it's his actual name. 
Yeah. So Charlie, who does not really have much of a storyline, he's much less than the other, the main three. He's sort of the ringleader troublemaker. Kind he's of. he's kind yeah. of a, yeah, the, tr- the troublemaker. But he's actually the only one who sort of stands up for anything in the movie. He writes a letter in the school paper that says the school should admit women, which is not a great sword to die on, but okay. And is more about his libido than right. liberation. <laughs> right. But at least he he takes a stand for sure. something. Sure, sure. Um, and then at the end of the movie, he's the only one that actually gets kicked out of school. Right. For... But then he punched that kid, too. I think it was more about Oh, that's right. He kid. punched that... The Cameron prick. Yeah. Yeah. Which... All people named Cameron in movies are just killjoy. <laughs> you know, we can go back to Ferris Bueller on that one. I like Cameron. <laughs> you like Cam in Ferris Bueller. In Ferris Bueller. Oh, okay. not, that's, oh God, no. That's not, I didn't like anybody in this movie. No. 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 Okay. So, yeah. So, as far as what these kids actually learned, as far as the value of that final scene where they're standing on their desk saying, oh, Captain, my Captain. Yeah, I don't know if they actually learned anything. They learned Except how for Nawanda. to no. What Nawanda learned was to paint faux Native American markings on his face and call himself Nawanda. That's what he learned. He is the dude at Coachella wearing the fucking headdress. That's who he is. He's the dude saying, "I'm one twenty-fifth Native American." That's who he is. That's who Nawanda is. You have a problem with that. I have all... Everybody should have a problem with that. I have all the problems with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because that makes you an asshole. And this is the thing, right? And this is sort of what you were getting at, right? Is like reading poetry and reading literature is supposed to, ideally, if you're doing it right, which they were not, give you some sort of, like, sympathetic imagination about people right. outside of yourself, particularly people from other cultures and other spaces that probably would have gone over better had they read any people of color. It did not seem to be the case. Or they read that Congo poem. Okay, so let's get to the fucking Congo poem, right? Because I knew that shit was going to be fucked up because you only hear the, the little, like, chorus of it. And it's... So it's like, then I saw the Congo creeping through the black, cutting through the forest with a golden track immediately. And they're, like, beating their bongos and doing this sort of tribal dance while they they do then it. Saw the Congo. Right. My little kind of, you know, racist spidey senses yeah. peaked up. I was like, what the fuck All is the that? Flags. What's going on there? So I looked at the poem, and it's called The Congo, A Study of the Negro Race mm. by Michelle Lindsay. And it's sort of terrible. So the first couple of lines is their basic savagery, fat black bucks in a wine barrel room. Then we go to tattooed cannibals, <laughs> danced in files. Then I heard the boom of the bloodlust song and a thigh bone beating on a tin pan gong. Yeah, they didn't read that part. Or mumbo jumbo, god of the Congo, and all of the other gods of the Congo. Mumbo jumbo will who do you? Mm-hmm. And it's a long ass poem of just rhythmic, savage porn and i i'm disgusted by it so when i so when we watched the scene i was like why are they doing some sort of you know jam band to this poem but apparently this guy Lindsay, the poet he is the founder of the quote-unquote modern singing poetry so the, his stuff was meant to be sung or chanted so, okay so that part i guess is okay and he thought himself an advocate for black people and he saw himself as anti-racist 
And he actually credited himself with discovering Langston Hughes. Hmm. So maybe they should have just read some Langston Hughes. Yeah, Langston Hughes does not... I don't hear any Langston Hughes no. in the film. We hear a lot of Walt Whitman and Robert Frost. Yes. Yes. Nor for this matter do we hear any Emily Dickinson or right. any female no, poets. No, no female poets. No. Right. So, again, it's just, it's a very, and again, that was a decision. Somebody decided that that was a poem that they were going to read in the Indian cave, and they were going to sort of chant right. and dance out, and it was going to be this great scene. Why? Well, I do think it ties back into that whole viewing the humanities and viewing poetry as this anti-intellectualism mm -hmm. thing. And that's, you know, they're in the cave and they're all getting savage. It almost becomes like Lord of the Flies mm -hmm. in there, where it's like the breakdown of this staid, stolid society around them. This, you know, stripping away of the... Sort of societal norms kind of thing? Or... Yeah. But the the terrible restrictions and burdens that come mm -hmm. with being the white privileged kids. Right. Like they're, you know, discovering their passions that have been thwarted and suppressed by this society. Right. Yeah, it's it's a problem. But again, it's like, do you realize that you are reciting and dancing to a poem that traffics in some really sort of disgusting racial stereotypes that we see throughout a lot of film for a very long time, this sort of idea of this sort of black savage. Right. And, and you know, ideas of voodoos and witch doctors and things like that. So it's just like, so yeah, I go back to this thing that was like, somebody made a choice that that was going to be that poem. There's no reason to pick that. Why would you pick that poem? They could have been doing anything. They could have done Robert Frost. They're in the fucking woods. Do some more Robert Frost. It's like, it's just like, I just, I don't know. But no, but because that's what I'm saying is that that they I needed something that savage because it's that they're getting in touch with their, mm -hmm. you know, their blackness, their inner, well, mm -hmm. maybe, sure. yeah, yeah, their inner passion, their mm -hmm. inner savagery, their being emotional instead of intellectual. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is this came out the same year as yeah, do the right thing. That I deliberately didn't tell you that until after you'd watched it because I knew that was if you were not already predisposed to hate this movie. But yes, this was right. 1989, and Siskel and Ebert both when they that year when they did their their show about the Oscar nominations singled out <laughs> Dead Poet Society as the worst best picture nominee mm -hmm. and said. This is the spot that should have gone to what was unquestionably the best picture of the year, Do the Right Thing. Because Radio Raheem did not die, so some little punk could call himself Nawanda and paint his face. That's why. <laughs> no. 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 And this was also the same year that the actual best picture winner was Driving Miss Daisy. Fucking <laughs> piece of shit. You have opinions on. I don't this? enjoy Driving Miss Daisy. I do not enjoy. I did not enjoy Dead Poet Society, and the fact that Do the Right Thing was not nominated is one of the great Oscar crimes, along with Crash winning. It's terrible. I mean, it does. You could write a book just on these two facts alone, comparing the faux rebellion of. Dead Poet Society, mm -hmm. and how actually safe low and comforting and low stakes and very, very white mm -hmm. that is, comparing that to a film like Do the Right Thing that is legitimately revolutionary and 
legitimately And they were afraid it was actually going to start riots in the world. Right. <laughs> so. it, it is, yeah, it is one of the great crimes in Oscar history. And a reminder that we're during Oscar season now, I mean, during award season now, and a reminder that it's all bullshit and they never get it right. But yeah, that's, that's particularly egregious is yeah. knowing that Driving Miss Daisy and Dead Poet Society were valued more than do the right thing. So I was right to have never seen it. So I'm guessing that the whole conversation about where this falls in your personal canon and what you think the rewatchability of it. Not even if you have uh, mono. Was that like my bar? Like if that you was have your mono bar. Was if you're home and you have mono. That, not even if you have mono, no. man. Just slip into some sort of dream state and take your pills and sleep. Just no, don't. Watch Dead Poet Society. <laughs> Don't do it. Was there any part of no, the film you actually enjoyed? No, no, no. You said you had not really watched too many Robin Williams movies. Mm-hmm. What did you? What was your reaction to Robin Williams? I mean, it's a quieter role for him. It is. But again, I wasn't. None of the performances really did anything for me. I didn't. I prefer What Dreams May Come with Magical Black. <laughs> Cuban uh, <laughs> You're putting that higher than this on the, I, and the Robin Williams Yes, Oprah? because, yeah. Yeah, I am. Okay, I think that's us. I'm fine with it. I'm totally <laughs> fine with it. I will lay my crown of thorns at the window <laughs> and die on the sword. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't even know what the hell we've talked about. <laughs> That's our show. We thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week as Nikki and I go looking for the stuff that dreams are made of, with a viewing of John Huston's quintessential film noir, The Maltese Falcon. It's made of cocaine, right? <laughs> it's a bird made of cocaine. That's, that's your prediction? Yes. Okay. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out in prose form on unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at freerangecritic, and send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. We do not encourage. He encourages. I encourage you to not do that. (laughs) Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. Yay. This poem is terrible. I'm sure it is. They're irrepressible high spirits, wild crap shooters with a whoop and a call. Like, why? first of all, why do black people always have to have irrepressible high spirits in y'all's imaginations? When you try your damnedest to smoke them out. But no, irrepressible high spirits. <laughs> they were singing in the slave quarters. What is that? Why? Why? Well, that's what white people admire about you. Is a your... Negro fairyland swung into view, a minstrel river where dreams come true. Bitch! <laughs> <laughs> but you're a friend to the black man. Get out of here. You didn't actually have to go read the poem. Though. The hell I didn't, because I needed to know that my anger was founded. They didn't actually read the poem, so... But, see, but this is because I had good English teachers, okay? My English teachers taught me to do some research actually read the text and then do a little bit more research to figure out where that text came from. You know, what were the the author's influences? So that's how I learned that this bitch thought that he was a friend to black people. Thought he was doing us a favor and found, quote unquote, Langston Hughes. Suck a dick. (laughs) Suck a dick.
a big old skull face wing, bitch, Dr. Dick. Easy now. You can edit that part out.